1: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Karsterblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Alan last week, where we introduced the new amazing miniseries where I think we're doing something that has never been done before as we have managed to line up Uh, most of the largest managers in our industry, to discuss the most important topics about their strategies, the business, as well as the industry as a whole. And we can't wait to start sharing these conversations with you, which I believe we will start doing on Monday. Also, if you missed our Wednesday episode, I really would encourage you to listen to the midweek conversation we had with Susan Shirk, who is probably the foremost expert on US-China relationship, and who... Takes us behind the red curtain to explain how China essentially derailed from its peaceful rise. So I really encourage you to go back and listen to these episodes if you missed them this week, but not until you finish listening to Rob and I today, of course. Rob, it is wonderful to be back with you in the new year, and um, so much happens every time we are apart, so to speak, in our conversations. So uh, how are you doing? How are things on your side?
0: Uh, it's it's wet and rainy outside as as I speak, um, so it feels like proper kind of wintry weather now. Um, and as we were discussing before we we started the recording, I've got a bit of a cold, which will explain my. I don't know. I think my voice sounds a little bit sexy like this, a little bit gravelly, you know. So hopefully that the listeners will in, enjoy the change in
1: tone. Yeah, no, I'm sure they. I'm sure they will. They might even enjoy the content as well. You never know.
0: Oh, that would be going a bit far, <laughs> nails. Surely.
1: All right. Okay. Well, we do actually have some um, some good topics uh, in our unbiased opinion, of course. But before we do that, um, here's a little market wrap because there obviously have been a few things going on uh, this week. Before I do that, maybe as it is uh, the first uh, SI episode in the new year, let me just acknowledge and say a big thanks for all of you who left a rating and review in the last few weeks on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Amazon. It is, first of all, they're really nice. And secondly, um, we do uh, pay attention to them and we do appreciate them very much. Now, this week, it was all about the December CPI uh, report. It was released on Thursday and it was a pleasant surprise for long-only investors. The headline CPI fell 0.1% month over month and the year. Over-year measure fell to 65 from 7.1% in the previous month. Now, Core CPI, the measure that excludes food and energy, rose over the previous month, a slight uptick from the 0.2 in the previous report. Core CPI has fallen, though, from uh, 5.7 year-over-year or to 5.7 year on year from its peak of 6.6% reported um, last year. The um, uh, market... Breathe a brief sigh of relief, as uh, witnessed by the massive rally in the long bond on the day of the release, closing nearly two points above the previous day's close. Much of the rally seemed to have been driven by short covering um, and driving the yield to maturity down to um, below 3.6%, I think. And at that year level, it's hard to justify perhaps buying on fundamental reasons only. Also, uh, on Thursday, Philadelphia Fed, uh, President Harker, said the days of the 75 basis points hikes are surely behind us and that the 25 basis points hikes will be appropriate going forward. Those comments and encouraging CPI release has driven consensus to expect 25 basis points hike at the February 1st FOMC meeting. He also said that a soft landing was still possible, even if it was bumpy. What he probably means is that the economy may avoid recession, but that the unemployment rate will rise. And reading the outlooks for 2023 that have been published so far, that view is a bit out of consensus. Pundits are expecting a recession later this year, and Fed Fund futures are predicting a rate cut later in the year as well. For their part, uh, no Fed speakers are hinting at rate cuts anytime soon. And although this is not market moving uh, and not really mentioned in the press, but the Federal Reserve Open Market Portfolio of Holdings fell below $8 trillion for the first time since its peak at nearly $9 trillion last April. As a reminder, the Fed is letting the portfolio run off with a, to a tune of $120 billion a month right now. Next week, we're going to get a measure for how the holiday selling season fared when retail sales are released on Wednesday. All right, Rob, um, what has stood out to you in the last, ooh, I don't know, six weeks since we last uh, spoke?
0: Um, yeah, i was just looking at the year-to-date numbers, actually, and uh, gone back as far as six weeks. Um, it's been, an, I guess it's been a kind of fairly smiley, positive time of the markets, right? So both bonds and equities are up, vol is down. Um, so if I look at my market monitor report that takes all the moves across all the 200 or so futures markets I monitor and vol adjusts them to put, a, put them on the same scale then um, yeah the biggest fallers are uh, V stocks and VIX so they're vol markets obviously. Um, and then on the on the plus side a lot of I can see a lot of equities um, euro stock stacks some European European stocks seem it done particularly well. The the rally in fixed income actually is not showing up in that report, so it's not that significant. Um, Unfortunately for my portfolio, it was rather significant, so I have a short um, bond position on, and um, I'm still short bonds actually, so I haven't closed that position yet, and uh, yeah, that that lost me a little bit of money, so I'm actually down um, for the the year to date um, 38 basis points, which, you know, it's not very much, but it's only been a couple of weeks, so um, pretty much noise, um, and yeah. Without without the those bond positions, I would have been up. So that's the uh, that was a bit painful because I'm I'm short vol, so that made me money, and also long um, various uh, equity markets. So that that also would have done done pretty well, I guess. Um, looking looking forward slightly, so I'm still trading with very relatively low risk, running at about a quarter of my long run average at risk expected risk target at the moment. Biggest position is still short bonds, um, short US twenty years um my biggest long position is uh, long positions actually not not a bit more dispersed there's nothing that stands out but i'm you know i'm long um equities as i've said i'm long metals as well as it happens um i'm short vol which is like being long equities if you like so i, I still have a very much a kind of long equity short bond position on which with the way the markets moved over the last couple of weeks this beginning of the year is is fairly balanced you know that those two things have pretty much hedged each other off and, left it out small loss so um, we'll see what happens um, if this bond rally continues and obviously I'd expect to close out that that bond position and and have a fairly then sort of pro pro cyclical position on and uh, um, you know who knows if, if inflation is has peaked and is falling and if if all recession risk is priced in then then yeah maybe that will turn out to be to be a good year we'll see how it goes
1: absolutely yeah it's interesting and you mentioned volatility a couple of times If my memory serves me right, I thought I noticed that I think Vol or VIX is kind of hoovering around just above the low of all of last year. I mean, it's really been pushed down. Um, And if you think about it, you know, we're heading into a new year. A lot of the crises from last year are completely unresolved yet. (laughs) volatility in the markets or in the equity markets at least um are not
0: suggesting any concerns really so yeah could be interesting i mean there's some just to say i think there's some weird stuff going on in the vol markets actually so um it has been a bit of a puzzle that in a year in which you know equity sold off pretty radically vol hasn't really been elevated that much at all um and as now is as you say is very low and if you suddenly drew my attention if you look at the the put call uh, ratio which i think bloomberg publishes it's, it's a historic high um and the other weird thing that's going on is there's a you know, big increase in people trading very short vol like one week options uh, which means the ten technical terms means there'll be a lot of gamma hedging going on and i don't i don't really i'm not i'm not a vol guy you have vol guys on the podcast who be able to express their opinions better on those but, but the vol market Certainly, for the last eighteen months or so, to me, it's felt really strange and almost disconnected from the equity markets. Which, so yeah, it's kind of a that's kind of an unsolved puzzle for me. Yeah, no, it has been a
1: conundrum. And actually, the way that um, I mean, the way that Jim and 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 I think you know Harry um, has uh, spoken uh, about it is really that uh, you know this year, uh, or I should say last year, you know, investors just seem to have been much better hedged uh, than 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 before, and therefore there's been a you know, much more supply and, and therefore we've seen these um, yeah, unusual uh, periods with very little uh, spike in volatility when markets were uh, trading off. Now, in terms of trend following, I will say the first couple of weeks have been a little bit soft. Um, I think softer than your portfolio. I think your portfolio actually is doing pretty well. I think CTAs in January uh, are, uh, um, you know, giving back a tiny bit uh, of the profits from last year, which of course was a record year, let's not forget that. Um, there were, however, so on the, on first sight, uh, I would say this week probably not a lot happened, even though we had a little bit of excitement uh, from the CPI report, but in a diversified portfolio, I don't think that, uh, that it played a major uh, role. But when you then look and drill down a little bit, I did notice that things like uh, aluminum had a a bit of a turnaround and suddenly and had like five or six pretty strong days in a row against the longer-term downtrend, at least if you're a longer-term manager. And I think it made a new um, sort of recent high every single day of last week. So that's going to cause a little bit of pain um, for longer-term trend followers. But offsetting that, I would also say that another market that had a pretty good week was the Mexican Peso. It's been in a big uptrend for a while now, and I think that certainly helped out most trend-following portfolios last week. Otherwise, when I look through a kind of a diversified portfolio, I would say fixed income, as you suggested. That's where most people would have lost the money last week. Um, as it went higher on the back of the CPI data. Um, but maybe also uh, in metals, although I did notice that you said you were long, but I think a lot of people are still short. Equities is probably mixed, depending on which part of the world you're looking at. Um, I think equi- sorry, energies probably made a little bit of money, um, so did soft, perhaps. And then grains and, and, and meats were pretty flat. My own trend barometer, though, has picked up. Now it's 55, which is getting close to... Um, to a nice level. Now, of course, people might think, well, if trend followers are down for the month and the trend barometer is up uh, in, in 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 a strong level, how does that work? Well, the trend barometer is a much shorter term time frame in terms of uh, how uh, it's calculated. So I think that if it stays up for a while, then maybe trend followers will also start to do our longer term trend will do better. Anyways, in terms of data, it's super easy because month to date and year to date is the same. So I just have to um, mention one of them BTOP 50 down 0.6%, SOCGEN CTA index down 1%, and change. Uh, trend index down 1.32%, and the short term traders index is up a quarter percent. And that is, of course, as of Thursday evening. Uh, other than that, uh, MSCI World obviously having a strong start to the month, up more than 5%. Uh, government bonds up more than 2% and the S&P 500 index up more than 4% so far. All right, well, let's um jump into some of the questions we had coming in, some of them uh, a few weeks ago, but because of the holiday schedule, we're going to bring them up um, now. So first one for you uh, was from Andrew. It's about his Moving Average crossover journey. Uh, Andrew writes, I was using the 16 and the 64 day Exponential Moving Average crossover but found that I was getting in and out of trades at nearly the exact same price after long journeys in both directions. So I switched to a 5-day and a 20-day EMA crossover. Using 5 and 20 EMA, I was using stops at 1.5 ATR at entrance to stay in the trade, but I found that I was getting stopped out, uh, but that the trend would continue. So I stopped using stops uh, to wait for the crossover to occur, and then I found that that I was taking 7 to 12% losses, which is not cutting losses short. Also, sometimes I was entering the trades late based on the trend-following study that said it's better to be in the trade than to wait for the next entrance. Questions. Should I use a stop or wait for the crossover to occur before exit? And uh, second question. Should I only enter trades right at the entrance? So... Rob, well, what are your I thoughts? I have to
0: say this This is interesting because I think this is a very common story for a lot of people. So what if I just summarise what Andrew's done, Andrew said, well, I've, I've got this system, A, and I started trading it, but it, it didn't do what I expected or it lost some money when I started trading it or, you know, I wasn't happy with it. So I switched to system B. The same thing happened again. You know, it, it didn't do what I expected or it lost some money or, you know. So I switched to system C. And, you know... And now, what Andrew seems to be saying to us is right. What What system D? What What's the next thing I should be doing? But to be honest, Andrew, what you should be doing is just sticking to one thing. Um, so you know. So if, if I look at you know your first system, which is a sixteen sixty four crossover, um, that I mean that's very that's a pretty good system. If you're going to trade a single crossover, um, it's not too fast, um, but it's fast enough that it captures trends fairly quickly. Um, in my own empirical research, I actually find that's the best um out of um particular set of crossovers you can use. I'm um, just to add this difference is not statistically significant. It's only, you know, the the other crossovers either side do pretty well as well. And to be honest, you're probably better off trading a blend of crossovers, but we'll come to that in a minute. So, so there's nothing wrong with system A, okay. Um, you, you should have just stuck to it and carried on with it. Um, and and be prepared for the fact that over a relatively short period of time, Andrew doesn't say, you know, what the time period between each of the decisions, if he was trading the first system for 20 years, then okay, perhaps fair enough. But my, my suspicion is that's not the case. And 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 also, he
1: doesn't mention uh, how many markets he trades, which I think also is a very important factor.
0: Yeah, it, definitely. Yeah, because obviously, um, if you're trading a small number of markets, as a retail trader typically is, it might be that over a relatively short period of time, you might just get unlucky. And the, the crossover you're using just, just doesn't work kind of moving on to the specifics of his questions like which crossover is best you know you're better off using a blend of crossovers if you were to use a single one personally i'd plump for 1664 but really the key message here is to define to something and stick to it um as to the questions whether you should use stops or wait for the crossover to change when you get out um you know that this is a kind of to be honest it's preferences. to preferences be, to, to be honest um Again, in my research, I found a small improvement if you use the crossover on the stop, but there's nothing wrong with using the stop and it makes the system simpler and easier to understand as well and easier to run manually so that, you know, go ahead and use the stop. Just be careful that the stop is calibrated such that um, it's getting you out of the trades at about the right level. Um, And I would say um, for, he says 1.5 ATR, I would say that's way too tight probably for for the speed of crossover he was using for, so for the original 1664, I would use probably 780R as my stop because that will give you something that will kind of, it's, it's not about optimising the ideal exit, it's about making sure that the, the stop is sort of aligned in time with the with the holding period of the underlying trading signal, if you like. Um, so, so and if he you, if you goes on my blog or buys my third book, Leverage Trading, there's a big discussion in there about how you can actually match these things up. If that, that's the route he wants to go down. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Andrew, the key thing here is you've got to find something that, that you're comfortable with and you understand and, and just stick to trading it. I, I feel like you're you're kind of almost a, a quite, I hate to be rude, but quite a bad advert for, for systematic trading because what you're doing is, is not systematic. You know, you're switching from one system to another system to another system based probably on insufficient evidence uh, and understanding of what you're doing. So, um, yeah, find something you're comfortable with. Make sure you understand the characteristics it is likely to have and then just stick with it
1: yeah, and just one 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 more thing to add there. Uh, and that is I think you all you you, must, you should also think about what your back test looks like because there must have been some evidence of what you're seeing uh, in real time in your back test as well. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. Uh, and again, i'm I'm, I'm Uh, I have a suspicion that it could also be to do with uh, the number of markets you trade. Anyway, just let me just make it absolutely clear that, of course, whatever um, Rob is saying with specific things, uh, you know, this is not investment advice and we don't, uh, you know, we take no responsibility whether these things work or not. But this is just, uh, you know, ideas to go and do your own due diligence and checks and all that stuff. All right. Then we move on to a question from Joseph. Joseph writes... Huge fan of all the work. Thanks for your generous contribution to the trading community. Question, is running your own trend following portfolio a reasonable idea in 2023, given the vast number of professional funds available and the importance of an ensemble approach? Said differently, do you think the professional fees paid to external managers are easily offset by the ability to take greater risk in an ensemble and the benefit of being a passive investor and to the uh, and then he says the impressive track record of Don and others set the bar extremely high for new managers um, and DIYs.
0: And we've talked about this before actually we have yeah. we have yeah i mean it, this is one of those um how long is a piece of string questions to be honest so um if you take someone like me um who's obviously quite comfortable and experienced in running their own trading system and has a reasonable amount of capital um to do it with um, then it probably wouldn't make a lot of sense for me to go and take my money and go and invest in a bunch of funds. Um, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get. I might. I wouldn't get much extra return from doing that. And I have so much fun trading my own money as well. So there we go. Um, but at the other extreme, if you take someone who um, is not as experienced and, and not as comfortable, but and also doesn't have such a lot. You know, has a much smaller amount of capital. So perhaps, you know, a few thousand dollars or euros or something like that. Um, then you're gonna you, you're gonna you're gonna struggle to to trade um, a diversified set of of instruments that's gonna give you, you know, mu- much of the performance of a diversified portfolio. So let's just talk very quickly some theoretical numbers and then I'll pass it back to you, Niels, for your for your opinion. So um, I would say very roughly, it seems okay to assume that a r- very large diversified fund can achieve a sharp of a sharp ratio of perhaps one to one point two before fees, and a, a an individual investor trading a small number of markets is probably looking at you know maybe a quarter of that, and um, you know the, so the twenty percent if you assume you've got a twenty percent performance fee and a couple of percent management fee, um, then, you know, you work the maths out and, and that individual investor would be better off in putting their money in, um, you know, in, in, a, in a fund. And if, if even better, if, if they can do it via, maybe via, um, you know, USIP funds into an ensemble into, a, a, you know, if you can find a dozen CTAs with, with USIPs, put it into a dozen USIP funds, that would be great. To do direct investment into a large number of funds is norm- normally requires quite large amounts of capital. So it's uh, a different story you know but as you as you get more of your own capital and you're more comfortable with what you're doing you can get you there will be some kind of break-even point where mathematically at least you, you're unlikely to be getting much benefit from inven- investing in, in an ensemble of funds rather than your own fund so you know somewhere between a few thousand dollars and, and, no, and not much experience and you know several million dollars and plenty of experience, somewhere along that point is a break-even at which it no longer makes, you know, it makes more sense if you want to, obviously, because not everyone wants to, to manage your own investments, um, mathematically at least, rather than putting it into a bunch of in uh, you know, external funds on which you've got to pay fees. So that's my take, which is a purely mathematical take, if you like. Exactly. I was just going to say that's
1: kind of the math part. And funnily enough, we're going to talk about math later on today. So, But that's the math answer, which I, um, I don't disagree with at all. But I think there's a bigger question that people always have to ask themselves. And that's kind of life-work balance, right? I mean, because if you want to do what you've done, Rob, people need to take it very serious and they need to devote a lot of time. And not everyone wants to do that. They want to play with their kids. They want to go out for, you know, on a on a on a Sunday instead of sitting in front of the computer, putting code, and having to defend that to their spouse. Maybe uh, because they're not spending time with them. All of that stuff you have to take into consideration. So this is why I've often been an advocate of actually using our great colleagues in this industry for uh, for making investments. So. Just keep that in mind uh, as well. Now, here's a nerdy question for you, uh, Rob. Um, a very short one from Bart. Uh, Bart says, "Can you discuss the importance of kurtosis in managed futures? I understand the benefit of skew, but the kurtosis is still a mystery to me. I'm sure it is for quite a few people. So,
0: what are your?" Thoughts? I love I love the ner- nerdy questions, Bart. So thank you for that. Um, so let's just quickly define what ketosis is, because not everyone will be familiar. Um, it's just a fancy way of saying fa- a fat tail distribution, basically. So um, if you compare a distribution of returns to a, a, a Gaussian normal distribution, um, then you'll see mu- much more mass in the tails of the distribution than you would expect. Uh, so if you look at something like just being long equities, S&P 500, you know, with a normal distribution, there should be a relatively small number of days in which the index loses more than, say, 3 or 4%. But if you actually look at the history of returns to the S&P five hundred, there's been actually, you know, many, many times that more days when the index has lost four, five, six, seven, all the way up to the twenty percent loss that we saw in, in 1987. Um so that that it's another way of saying fat tails. Um and the relationship with, with trend following, well, it's back to our, our old favourite subject of outliers. So the these um these fat tails, um, you know, the the idea is that as a trend follower you want to be on the right side of them um and um and the idea is that that basically you know by by staying in a position when it's in your favor you'll hit all these nice fat tails and then if you get a fat tail against you then you'll cut your position and be out of it so the idea is that you can you can transform a distribution that's um you know kind of unpleasant like the s p 500 um, if you can be uh short on the days when there are negative fat tails and vice versa then you'll get your your own the distribution of your the returns of your trend following strategy will look like a nice positively skewed distribution with lots of big fat right hand tails so lots of big fat positive days and very s- a smaller number of days in which you you lose a lot of money um so the the way I like to think of um sort of trend following is you' you're kind of Taking an underlying market's distribution, which you can think of it like a, as a piece of clay, and you're kind of squeezing it and massaging it and, and changing it into something that, that you're happier with, and um, making it more positive skewed. And, and if you have fatter tails in the underlying distribution, um, then you, it's you. It's, then you'll end up with fatter tails in your trend following distribution. And the idea is that hopefully there'll be more on the on the good side than on the bad side. And that'll be lots of nice, wonderful, positive skew. So that's the general idea. Um, and, and so um, if you imagine that you've got a portfolio of normally distributed returns, so lots of markets that behave exactly as the finance textbooks would you'd expect them to, and you look at the diversification benefits from holding that portfolio, they're, they're basically limited, depend by the amount of diversification you can get measured through linear correlations, basically. So you're you know, if you go from one market to 100 markets, the improvement's about two to two and a half times in terms of improvements in risk-adjusted return, which is nice. You know, it's better than nothing. Um, but if you actually look at what you actually get doing that, the the improvement's more like four or five times. It's much better than you'd expect, given the the underlying distributions being um, normal, and it's the it's the fat tails in those underlying distributions that are doing that. So the, the short answer is, well, we like fat tails because we like outliers. Um, and that's kind of, uh, gives us a higher diversification effect because trend following on a single market, as we kind of discussed briefly with the first caller, um, is not that profitable. So you need to have lots of markets and the this outlier, this fat tail effect allows you to get additional dis- diversification from them.
1: Yeah, cool, good. Last question is from Ross. Um, Ross uh, writes in, for decades, trend followers prided themselves uh, on one set of parameters across all markets in their system systematic models. Whether it's X days for breakouts or X days for moving averages or a mixture of both, etc., Jerry and CTAs are adamant against no optimization for each market traded or optimization much at all, if at all, to get their parameter selection um. Uh, curve fit. I know Jerry prefers longer and slower parameters. Q- question one: How do you all pick your parameters that you do trade? Throw darts at the wall or take the one that uh, the and take the one that the darts hit? Do you choose a 200-day breakout based on your experience in markets, etc.? Why and how? With that stage set. A little more background. There are probably shops out there that game or hunt CTA stops and parameters. They know what a lot of CTAs use and game them to death and take easy money at times, stop them out, essentially. This, among other possible reasons, has led to something I've noticed in the discussions in your podcast. I've heard statements or hints that managers and shops are now using short, medium, and long-term systems parameters to avoid fast crashes or enemy firms gaming their models. Fast, medium, or slow parameters has felt like fancy talk and dancing around what it really might be curve Why not just confess the sin and optimize the parameters and get something that will probably be the average of the fast, medium, and slow parameters anyway? And then question two, is fast, medium, and slow parameters in models a recent development, or can you confirm if this has been
0: Uh, done during the uh, 70s and the 80s goodness me what a question eh this actually relates to um a little bit to a paper a paper that that, um, we'll discuss in in a bit so um yeah there's there's a bit of a theme to this episode definitely and this actually comes back as well to the very first question about you know which cross server should i trade you know so 1664 is kind of fast medium i would say um and then he's the andrew said he'd switch to something even faster and then he, you know, wasn't sure what to do. So, um, yeah, it all relates together. Well, how do I pick all the parameters that I trade? Is it just throwing darts to the wall do, or is it market it, experience? Don't you actually have a dart in your shirt? I do, yes, I do. So I see it right there. I, th- obviously, this being a podcast, you you people uh, listening can't see this, but if I move my head to one side, there is a all dartboard disclosure. behind me. Yeah, exactly. But that is not how I pick my parameters. Um, <laughs> you'd be pleased to know, or maybe not pleased to know, maybe that would be, be nice. In in all seriousness, you can do uh, tests where you if you completely randomise your parameters. Um, it's not a bad test actually of of your um, of your sort of the fitting of your trading strategy, um, because you you basically want to see the difference between um, what you've actually fitted and what a completely set of random parameters would look like. Um, because with some with some markets there might not be that much difference to be honest. If you take something that's done very well with trend following in a back test like say bond futures until quite recently um, then randomizing your parameters you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily see a lot of difference so anyway I'm, I'm getting a bit off topic there so I I kind of do a mixture of things um, so I um, I'm a big fan of weight of, of doing of keeping things as simple as possible um, and I, I actually in my my production system so that what I'm actually trading right now um, if I was to, to take the example of fast, medium, slow. In fact, that's three things, if you like. I've actually got six things, um, in in my in, at least in my core trend-following system. There's a lot of other stuff in there as well. I've got different ways of doing trend-following. But to keep things simple, um, my, my core kind of moving average crossover uh, strategy, That's um, I've got maybe, six, say, six speeds. And what I do is very simple in my production system. I basically just um, say, well, for this particular market, which of those six things are cheap enough for this particular market to trade? So, for something like S and P five hundred on Nasdaq, um, I could trade all six of those. Um, for something like, um, i don't to think of something cocoa. that's expensive, like uh, cocoa. I don't trade cocoa actually. Okay. Um, but let, let's let's kind of stick with the the theme and and say um, dry milk futures. They're very expensive to trade. I can maybe only trade one of those crossovers. And then what I do is, I've, so I've got either one crossover or two or three or four, or four or four or six, and then I just take an equal weight across them. And that's actually not kind of the, the empirically or theoretically best way of doing it, but it's easily the simplest. And it kind of is obviously very robust to accusations of overfitting, which is obviously what is being thrown at us now. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's how I fit that particular particular thing and then I have other things I fit like risk weights for markets and so on and so forth and um, yeah it's it's i what I'm trying to do is is basically most of the time my philosophy is what's the simplest way I can do this the most robust way I can do this is there sufficient statistical evidence to move away from that and do something that's a bit more complicated if not I stick with the simplest approach basically so yeah so if you if you think about say a slightly different problem which is allocating risk weights across markets with that, if I was to just give each market the same share of the risk capital, that would mean, for example, I would be massively overweight equities because I have a lot more equity futures than I do have other kinds of futures. um and I would be underweight, say vol futures because I think there's only two vol futures I actually trade. um so you know that would be they would have a much smaller weight than they actually get. so that that's an example where there's very strong kind of empirical evidence and just common sense that. The maximally diversified portfolio is going to have, you know, less equities and more vol than the simple, simple kind of equal weight across markets would. Now let, let's get a little bit more into the um, idea about whether you can actually game CTAs. Okay, so the logic here, I guess, is okay. Well, all CTAs are pretty much doing the same thing. That's the kind of first point then what follows from that is that if you can work out what it is they're doing, then you can front-run them, effectively. Um, that I think front-running them is a more accurate way of describing what you would do. What you would do is say, you know, if you knew that CTAs were likely to be buying tomorrow, say, based on what's happened in price over the last few days, you'd buy today and you'd hold that position and then close it out. So, Ross... Uh, talks about um, you know stopping out CTAs. I don't think you can necessarily be, be, do that. To start, stop out the entire CTA industry. But if you if you could predict what people were doing, you could definitely try and front run, run them. Absolutely. Personally, I think that if you try and do that, what you end up doing is trading like a CTA but faster. Pretty much, um, you end up just trying to trade trade faster trends. So um, you know it's it's and, and we know that fast fast trend following works okay but me you know it's not you know for we talk about fast versus slow quite a, quite a lot in, in in this this series to be honest yeah short medium you using a mixture of speeds is the most robust thing to do and we already said that to the first guy choosing it's picking a single speed is gonna yeah potentially lead to you being front run if if everyone especially if everyone was doing it um it's definitely more statistically robust it's definitely more profitable out of sample it's definitely what you should do. And, you know, I've already described that's what, what I do, definitely. Um, yeah, and, and uh, as, he, as he says um, in, in, the, in the question, you know, why not just optimize the parameters and get something that will probably be the average? Yeah, if you do do a kind of sort of really hardcore statistical optimization and you do it properly, you end up with something that's pretty similar to what I've described already, a kind of simple mixture of fast, medium, and slow with some uh, account for trading speeds. I'll just quickly address this, this, the second question and and actually, Neil's probably in terms of historical background, you probably have a better idea of, of this than I do, but I can only speak to the experience at AHL um, uh, where um, obviously I was working in the, you know, from between about 20 years ago and about 10 years ago now. and But also I knew something of the history of how their systems had developed over time. And I do know that their first systems were, yeah, just one speed, if you like, um, but they added other speeds quite quickly so you know we're talking a, that would have been done probably in the you know 89, 90, 91 that kind of time period um so the you know they, they weren't trading the kind of simple very simple you know one entry one stop uh system <laughs> for very long if you like they they added the the additional speeds quite early on um, I can't speak to ha- to, to the, the wider CTA industry in terms of developing. Um, I think it's probably quite unusual that, that, that anyone is trading a, sing- a single speed. I mean, even the kind of simple strategy, one entry, one stop, you're probably doing more than one of those, right? You're probably, you know, you've got, got fast entries, medium entries, slow entries. Um, so, um, you know, it, we, we I say this a lot. But at the end of the day you end up with things that behave relatively similarly. okay you end, and that's why you know returns in the CTA industry are correlated because although everyone's doing everything a little bit differently, at the end of the day, if you're trying to find trends and you find a trend and you stay in a trend till it ends, your return profile is going to look pretty similar to someone who's doing something similar to that, but you know maybe with a fancier approach.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, very comprehensive answer. I don't know that I have that much to uh, to add to it. What I will say, just a, a couple of observations uh, to Ross. Uh, one is, of course, that when you hear people say, "Well, I there's absolutely no optimization in what I do," I mean, don't necessarily means that there's absolutely no optimization in what they do. I mean, we all base our choices some somehow on. On, uh, on research, uh, otherwise there's no point in doing any research and, and and so on and so forth. So I would just say that as a little caution there. I think most people will choose parameters based on some kind of observation, whether it's hardcore uh, data-driven or whether it's a visual thing, um, who knows? I think fewer people would use just a visual uh, interpretation of the markets. They would probably have some kind of data to back it up. But I do think that there are maybe two ways of deciding then what the actual model should look like. You can either go by kind of a common sense approach where you would sit down and you would and maybe it doesn't happen that much anymore, but it probably did back in the a few a few years ago, where people would by committee maybe decide whether we should have, you know, 25% short-term models and 50% medium term and 25% long term. And they would move those weights a little bit every year depending on what they they found in the research. That's one way where there is some discretionary element. Another way would be to just simply do it by the data. Let the data just decide how the parameters uh, would be picked. That can certainly uh, be be done. So that's another way of doing it. But my my overall sort of um, sense uh, and answer back to to Ross is that the whole thing about gaming the cta industry uh, this is something that i've voiced uh, uh, certainly over the years and i and i find it incredible that some of these big uh, investment banks are so obsessed with trying to tell the whole world when ctas are likely to trade and and often when you read the headlines it's actually not at all what's happening in the portfolios that that uh, that we come across so i would be careful uh, generally speaking and also i would say there's a lot more going on than just the signal. That actually decides whether you have to trade or not on a specific day. The whole risk management side of things. And also just the way managers implement their systems. I think fewer and fewer managers use stops uh, once they become of a certain size and therefore it's not like you pick their stops. You... you you know it's not how we manage these portfolios uh, anymore it's not to say that you can't it's just to say i don't think that's where most of the money today is invested and so yeah i think it's a fool's errand to try and and do that but if you're a um, if you're some kind of market maker or or you know short-term speculator not trying to do a trend following system but just trying to say yeah let me see if i can buy today and as rob said maybe tomorrow there will be some more bias because there are some signals that are generated and then I can get out uh, later in the afternoon. Okay, sure. If that's what you want to spend your time doing, uh, you know, go ahead. And there's always going to be some th- times where it works and other times where it, it doesn't work. Your last question about the shorter term nature back in the 70s and 80s. I think there's some truth to that. I can't remember what we were doing uh, back in, the, in, in that early phase uh, of Don's uh, career. We know from Richard Dennis's uh, experiment that certainly the timeframes they were using initially were sh- shorter term than what they are typically uh, today. So, uh, sure, the industry has evolved and. And, um, and and timeframes have changed. Um, as I've mentioned before, um, we do run a study every year to see which look-back periods based on a classic trend-following uh, system would have done best for every single calendar year. And there are years where shorter-term timeframes uh, would have done best. For example, in 2008, even though it was a good year for everyone, actually 50 days was the, in, in our experiment here, was the absolute best, but you would have made money even if at 200 days, look back. So I think also look back periods very much depend on the type of trend following approach you use. I think breakout will have certain properties in terms of look back, and then other types of trend following might have completely different properties in terms of parameter picks. Do you want to add anything,
0: Rob? Yeah, just, well, two things actually. Um, Firstly, briefly on stocks, the reason why stops don't make sense beyond a certain size if you think about what that implies it means you're going to close your entire position on a single day uh and if, if you know if you're running like five billion dollars that, that's probably going to be a bad idea i'm going to really hurt you in terms of slippage so yeah it'd be insane for a multi-billion dollar fund to be running a a single speed in a single stop that would make no sense at all um yeah i just feel i should defend optimization slightly um because um i, I think let, let's take an example of a uh, two managers one has done a a kind of proper backtested optimization with only backward looking data uh, and the other one has said well based based you know based on my market experience i know that say a 200 day moving average is best and that's what i've used and when i back uh, back tested it and i found that it's it's better than anything else so i haven't overfitted at all actually that manager <laughs> has effectively done in sample fitting implicitly um, because they they know from their market experience what the best moving average is likely to be you know, all the has done is confirm that they were correct in that. That just means that their market experience is, is accurate, their memory is accurate. And for them to say that they haven't done any, any, any fitting is, is actually incorrect because, um, all, you know, they, they, they've pulled the, the best parameter out of the air. That's no different from running an in-sample um, and finding that 200-day moving average that way. And both of those approaches are inferior to someone who's done a proper optimization that uses only backward-looking data. Uh, and that that will result won't result in an unrealistically high um sharp ratio um so so you know um properly done, optimization is probably better than not doing optimization at all, yeah, no, I think that's a
1: very valid and I think actually what distinguishes firms from each other is uh to large extent the, the people who probably know how to do a good uh optimization without all the uh, mistakes you can make and and people who don't uh, I think that's what shows up uh, over time in in the data so i think that's very valid uh, for sure now we're going to shift gear to something completely different for a little while and then we go back to something that's very common for people listening to this and that is the u.s debt ceiling because this week treasury secretary janet yellen noticed uh, or notified the congress that the u.s will reach its statutory debt limit next thursday and asked House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to either suspend or increase the debt limit. And uh, Janet Yellen wrote um, the, uh, that the Treasury Department will begin taking certain extraordinary measures to prevent the U.S. State, the United States from defaulting on its obligations. And she also told McCarthy it is unlikely that cash and extraordinary measures will be exhausted before early june now you um brought up this topic so i don't actually know where you want to go with it but these are just some of the things that i had noticed during the week
0: yeah i mean I, i've mentioned the us debt ceiling before i think i first became aware of it uh, in 2011 um when i was running the fixed income portfolio and uh, you know the the we had this issue with the, the debt ceiling and also the us being downgraded by the rating agencies the reason i want to mention it is i just think it's completely bonkers. Uh, that the you know the world's most advanced economically advanced country is in this situation where, um you know they can't actually properly manage their the government finances, and um you know, on the one hand we could those of us who are, don't live in America could be you know like well this is this is quite amusing but actually it has very serious ramifications because you know U.S. government debt effectively underpins the entire global financial system, so um, you know this this is this is potentially quite scary. Um, and it does feel like the certain politicians in the U.S. have kind of had this ability to repeatedly point a gun effectively at the the head of the global economy and say, right, you know, give us what we want or we pull the trigger. So that that's, you know, my, my general despair at the situation. I mean, the political situation in the U.S. with taking all of this time to elect a speaker in the House of Representatives, I mean... You know, it's almost like there are three parties now in, in American politics. You know, there's, there's kind of sensible Republicans, Democrats, and and these these n- people who still believe that uh, the previous president should be president. In fact, still technically is president because he didn't lose the election, right? Um, it, it's a, a very, very bizarre and weird situation. Um, and uh, it's a fascinating juxtaposition of between the fact that, yeah, America's this very advanced economic country, you know, home of all the, the, the best tech companies on the one hand and on the other hand, that They seem to have the political um, level of a of a, a much poorer and less developed country. But anyway, the other thing that amuses me about the US debt ceiling is every time it comes up, um, various people come out of the woodwork with all kinds of creative ways to, to solve it. So in the past, we've had mint the coin, the idea being here that they could mint this huge um, coin that would have a notional value of $10 trillion or whatever you needed. This time around, we've had a new one which is the idea of, of issuing debt um, at a extremely non-par level and the reason being that it's only the notional value of the debt that counts towards the ceiling and not the actual market value so the idea is that um you you know you can basically issue a bond uh, that had a notional value of $100 but a market value of $200 you could sell it for $200 and you you then only $100 of that would count towards the debt ceiling you could use that to Recycle existing debt, and then you've basically effectively borrowed another hundred dollars. So the, these things are quite interesting, kind of from a kind of the you know I find I find them sort of you know creative finances or something that, that, that I find interesting. Um, but yeah, it's just a bit depressing that we're uh, even having to have this conversation, to be honest.
1: You know, it's it's a, it's a quite it's it's somewhat topical, uh, and you wouldn't know why I'm saying that, and that is because. In a few weeks, uh, I'm going to publish an episode that I recorded uh, yesterday where Kevin Coldiron, who's the host of the Ideas Lab series, actually interviewed uh, Perry Merling, who has written these books about empires and money and basically a description of uh, Charles Kindleberger, who, you know, was one of the foremost economists uh, in the United States. And it's all about really... The Fed and the role of a key currency country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, so yeah, there was definitely some some uh, interesting points uh, and and a very interesting uh, history lesson being uh, shared yesterday. But uh, as I said, it'll come out in a, in a, in a couple of weeks. Now let's get back to something that we are much more familiar with, which is trend following, and um, this is inspired by another interesting paper by our friends uh, over at Man. And, um, it's a, it's a conversation which ties into what we talked about earlier today. Namely, kind of different speeds of trend following. Um, they uh, they call it the need for speed trend following. And they start out by quoting, actually, I think it's a maverick uh, in Top Gun in 1986, where he says, I feel the need, the need for speed. So they've done a good job in tying it into something that we, uh, we all can uh, relate to. But they also explain what we mean by speed and they... Um, actually do a pretty good job in in, in highlight different things within it so without me taking any of the spoilers away from you rob um tell us a little bit about what uh, why this is an interesting um topic and paper
0: yeah actually uh, it reminds me that my last blog post was called scream if you want to go faster uh, which is also a quote from a but this time from a, a pop song um so uh so yeah but i'm not i won't i won't uh, publicize my, my blog post because it's not it's not relevant to this topic, uh, although it is to do with trading speed, but it's something about something a bit different. Obviously, you can go and look at it if you want to. Uh, yeah, so the, this um, was quite an interesting paper um, because, you know, and it relates to the discussion we've had actually throughout throughout the program so far. So, you know, which crossover should I use? Should we use a mixture? Um, you know, so what? one interesting thing is if you actually look at the um, performance of, of fast trend following empirically, uh, it's not as good. It's not as good, it hasn't been historically as good as, as, as um, medium and slower trend following. And that's particularly true in equity indices, and it's also particularly true after about 1990. So before 1990, it did pretty well. Uh, and then subsequently, performance has, has pretty much flatlined or even gone down slightly, depending on exactly how you measure it. Um, so based on that, you might think, well, what's the point of trading quickly? Uh, and interestingly, um, if I think back to 2009, um, Winton famously kind of very publicly slowed down their, their system on the basis that you know that, that they wanted to reduce costs and, and they didn't really see any evidence that faster trend following was actually of any value. But this paper is takes a more nuanced approach um, and, and looks says well actually the interesting about trend, faster trend following um, is it has two very good properties. One is is it, it's a much purer kind of um, um, protection against the market falling. Because it's, it is you know, so owning a trend following strategy is a little bit like owning a um, an option straddle. Um, in that it will do better if the market moves away from the where it is now, away from the strike. Um, and the the faster you trade, the more pure pure that relationship becomes. So it has, for example, faster trend following has much better positive skew um, than slower trend following. Um, it has um, a lower correlation with the overall market as well. And that kind of makes sense if you think about it. So you can imagine if you were trading really slowly, you would pretty much have been long stocks for the last 40 years. You know, if you were trading slow enough, because there would never have been a drawdown that was was long enough or big enough for you to actually kind of stop your position out. You know, and even and even if you, you sort of speed up a little bit, um, there'd probably only be about three or four occasions in that 40-year period when you would be short or flat. And the rest of the time would be long, so your your kind of beta, so-called beta to the stock market, would be relatively high, and it would look, you know, look like you were just owning stocks basically. And the same could be argument could be made of bonds or any other market as well. So faster trend following, um, what, what this means in, in principle is a faster trend following is actually a much better diversifier um, to a long only portfolio, to a classic sixty forty portfolio, than than medium and slow trend following is, um, and that actually overcomes. Effectively, um, the disadvantage it has from the the fact that its net performance isn't isn't as good. Um, so what these guys do in the paper, which is you know it's reasonably thorough and quite quite nice, I have to say. Um, but they look at they look at the sort of characteristics of of um, trend following different speeds, which is for me at least is not new information, but it's still nicely laid out. And then they, they, what they then do is is look at the the different behavior of these different speeds during sell-offs in equity markets. They're always bringing everything back. in this paper, I guess because it's aimed at investors who've got 60, 40 portfolios, they're always, they're always bringing things back to the equity market or the 6040 portfolio and say, how do things compare to that?" Um, and they're, they're saying, you know, well, it's definitely the case that in the very worst you know um, sell-offs, you're, you're better off. Um, with with you know with the with these faster um, Having more of these faster signals in them Now of course the downside of trading faster is costs It costs you more money. Um, so quite quite um, Quite rightly they they highlight the point that execution is is very important because costs are going to form a much bigger proportion of your um, Net returns for faster signals and for slower signals. So you can't just willy-nilly trade these things You have to have good execution um, and then, but then the last section of the paper is, which is probably the, the most novel and the most interesting for me, is what they they basically do. Um, and uh, if you're following along at home, this is Figure four, which is quite near the bottom. They look at the drawdown profile of a sixty forty portfolio, and what they, which obviously is, has been pretty terrible recently, but also uh, didn't didn't look great in, for example, two thousand and eight, nine, because the 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 sell off in equities more than overcame the positive returns that were made in bonds. Um, and there was a similar massive drawdown in the early 2000s for similar reasons. Um, so what they do is they take that that drawdown profile and then they, they say, well, what happens if we add that to um, a, a blend of momentum that includes more or less fast and slow stuff? Um, and they find the drawdowns get much smaller if they use an equal blend. So going back to what I was saying about fitting, I have an equal blend of different speeds of momentum. That 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 obviously has fast momentum in it, and that does much better than a another blend that completely excludes slow momentum. Uh, sorry, completely excludes fast momentum, and therefore is much slower. So yeah, the the bottom line is that the the on a standalone basis, you know, fast momentum is kind of take it or leave it. It's not probably going to add a lot of value to portfolio, maybe even detract from it. But done properly, it can actually improve the diversification properties of trend following versus 60/40. Um, And given that most people are investing in trend following alongside a kind of more standard long-only portfolio, even if it's not exactly 60-40, that's obviously a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously a topic we've uh, discussed uh, from time to time. I think that, like you mentioned uh, earlier today about uh, volatility, because of course the argument has been made that shorter-term strategies will do better uh, during quote-unquote an equity crisis we've certainly seen examples of that where the first few weeks um clearly short-term strategies should uh, on on balance do better um not so much uh, if the crisis continue but then we had this year oh I should say this year but then we had 2022 and actually, it didn't work. And this is also why I think what 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 you're saying is that you know it's always probably a good idea to have a little bit of everything, right? You can't, you shouldn't put it all. You put all your eggs in one basket and, and say, well, definitely, I, this is what I need, and I I rely 100 on on shorter term timeframes being um, going to save my portfolio. They don't always do that. There's a lot of other things, but but it was a good. Um, uh, another good paper from them. Um, do you want to talk about optimal trend following with transaction costs, given the fact we're already at an hour point, or do you want to talk about math?
0: Let's 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 do that really quickly. So, because um, it relates to previous discussion we've been having. So, I said there were there were different ways of kind of deciding what parameters you should have in your system earlier, right? And we were talking about fitting, um, and I said you know you, there's the kind of pick the best number based on your market experience. There's kind of proper fitting if you like. There's kind of an in-sample fitting. And there's actually another way which we haven't discussed, which is that it's actually possible to theoretically derive the best parameters of, of what your you know, your trading strategy should look like. Um, and the way you do that in principle is you um, make some assumptions about market behavior, um, and then you, you wheel in a lot of very, very fancy maths, um, and you, you then sort of say, well, given, given these assumptions, given this, you know, what's the optimal strategy to maximize my performance? here and you the nice thing about this approach is you don't need any actual data to do it so there's no real fitting going on um now that's the, the a slight caveat here is that if in the some assu- if the assumptions you've made are themselves based on the kind of observed market behavior you've actually sort of empirically calibrated your model then you you could argue this is sort of fitting by the back door um but if you can minimize the amount of uh of that that's going on then um that's um, obviously good and you can theoretically end up in a situation where you're you're basically you use no market data at all um, To to sort of say what's going on now. It's so it's not it's a nice approach to use Um, I've used it myself um, and I thought I'd mention this this particular paper uh, Which is called optimal trend following transaction costs. It's available on SSRN uh, Just I'll put a link on the page Um, And what these guys do is basically they take this approach. They say well given some assumptions about market behavior Without any data, there's no fitting involved, what's the best trading strategy to capture trends, um, given that we have transaction costs? Um, Because without transaction costs, obviously, for example, faster trading would be better than slower trading. And they, the, the nice thing is that they recover something that looks very much like the the kind of moving average crossover that I'm in particular is extremely fond of. So, uh, uh, it, it, but it's it's just a nice, n- neat little model. Um, not really of any practical value, to be honest. But it, it, it's nice to have your your um, models confirmed by another source of evidence, if you like. So, you know, as I said, different different sources of evidence. Some of those can be, you can accuse people of overfitting, but this, this particular approach uses no data at all. So there's no fitting involved. So it's a really clean kind of tick in the box of, yes, this is a good way to capture trends. Fantastic. Good stuff. Well done.
1: All right. Last point is something which is um, yeah a little bit different um, because we're into the um, British politics of some sort, um, but then we're combining that with math. Um, so uh, tell, us, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about what uh,
0: what we're going to talk about. Well, our, so our Prime Minister this week is, is Rishi Sunak. Um, it's quite hard to keep up with who is Prime Minister in the UK at the moment. Um, it's a bit like living in Italy, but both the weather and the food is worse. Um, and he gave a speech recently, and one of the, one of the things he said was that everyone in uh, at school in the UK should study maths until they're 18. Uh, most people at the moment have the option of, at the age of 16, of switching to a um, you know, most people in the UK they, they basically do A levels, which means you're doing three or four subjects. Um, so obviously, you're narrowing things much down much further. Not many students subsequently do A level maths, um, which would be studying maths up to 18. Um, and you know, there are there are you there are obviously various arguments to be made as to why this is a good thing. Um, but but it was brought into focus for me yesterday actually because yesterday I gave a talk to a local secondary school about careers in in uh, in the financial markets and trading generally. And one question I always get asked is, well, how much maths do you need for this? Um, how much maths do you actually need to, to do what you do um, or to work in the financial markets? And so, um, and, and actually it's like, well, there's <laughs> it's actually quite a difficult question to answer because there's a huge range of jobs in this industry, right? Um, and and the, the, I've worked with people who, have, who stopped doing maths at 16 and went on to do something entirely differently. Um I, I mean I you know, for example, to take an extreme example, I work with people who, you know, did Latin or Greek at university. So you know, very very much at the other end of the sort of scientific spectrum. But but they're working in jobs where the main skill they need is the ability to to deal with clients and, and get on with people. And um that's something they obviously did very well. Um, and then the other extreme, you've got people who are, much, I have to say, much cleverer than me with, with PhDs in, in maths or physics um, who are working on um, either particularly advanced trading strategies or working as quants and doing things like derivative pricing and, and risk management and so on and so forth. Um, personally, I think I kind of sit roughly in the middle of that that spectrum. So I've, I did A-level maths and then I did economics, which is kind of a Obviously, not a real science, but is a is a subject that has a, a fair degree of, of mathematics in it. So, um, you know, to, to do the to do the so to, to bring it back to trend following, to just follow a basic training strategy that somebody else has already developed, and we, we know without needing to worry about back testing and optimization, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, high school math is is I would say more than enough. And actually, one of the things I've tried to do in in my writing is to do things that don't require advanced maths as much as possible. And literally, you know, I don't think I've ever used, uh, for example, the the integral sign in anything I've ever written. So, um, you know, because I I think to a degree that's not necessary. It's definitely helpful if you are backtesting to have at least an intuitive understanding of statistical significance and potentially ideally to have, have, you know, more advanced statistical knowledge if you're really going to get into the weeds of this stuff um and yeah there are use cases where you would need very advanced maths but i think generally the amount of maths you need to to do this job is probably quite overrated but that that's that's my opinion anyway i'd be curious to know what other people think
1: yeah no absolutely it's a good point and i actually think the um you're absolutely right i mean in the industry as a whole there's definitely room for lots of different talents um because we can't all be Super quants and and uh, and and just uh, look at at the screen all day. So uh, so it's a, a roomly industry um, and it's a fun one and it's uh, it's never never dull and always changing and and actually because it ties into whether you're systematic or not, it all ties into what's going on in the world because that affects how markets are moving. So uh, it's uh, yeah,
0: I think there's something for for most people um, to enjoy. Yeah. I would say, actually, that it's useful to have people from a different mixture of backgrounds. So, you know, if I was employing, if I was starting a hedge fund, I'd probably, for example, employ a historian, um, you know, because I'd want someone who has an understanding. And I'd probably employ a politician and a, someone with a background, sorry, a, not a politician, but someone with, a, with a, <laughs> a background in politics and someone with a background in geography. And, you know, because all of these things um, feed into how the, how markets move, definitely. What What are you, I'm trying to remember, is your background in physics, Niels? I can't remember. I wouldn't say
1: it's physics um, because uh, I didn't study anything after high school. Um, so, uh, so I have absolutely no uh, no credentials to. Uh, oh, wow! To this, yeah. So, so there, there we I'm, go. I'm, I'm proof that... that you don't need a lot of yeah, math to uh, definitely to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I am learning by doing. So um, there we are. All right, good stuff. I think we're going to wrap up for today. This was fun, as usual. Thank you so much, Rob, for all of that. Now, uh, if you haven't left the rating and review uh, until now, um, this is your chance. We would love to, if you would take five minutes uh, to do that, it really does help. Um, And if you uh, don't know how to do it, you can go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash review. And then there's some instructions that I hope um, you will uh, take us up on. And as usual, you can send questions to us um, and uh, that you can do by email. Info at toptradersonplugged.com. Next week, it'll be with uh, Rich. So I'm sure he would love to tackle some of your questions. Um, So uh, by all means, send them through to us. With that said, that's all from Rob and me today. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And uh, don't forget, by the way, check out the new, in my own unbiased words, completely amazing uh, series of conversations with the absolute best minds in our industry starting on Monday that I'm doing with Alan. Uh, I think actually the first um, the first one up uh, in the series is someone that you know very well as it is uh, the CIO at Man AHL. From Rob and me, as I said, thanks for listening. Take care of yourself and take care of each other.